Hi, I'm Caleb Pook, and I'm reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountain. He sat down, and his disciples came to him. He taught them, saying, Happy are people who are hopeless, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are people who grieve, because they will be made glad. Happy are people who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, because they will be fed until they are full. Happy are people who show mercy, for they will receive mercy. Happy are people who have pure hearts, because they will see God. Happy are people who make peace, because they will be called God's children. Happy are people whose, king, whose lives are harassed because they are righteous, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are you when people insult you and harass you and speak all kinds of bad and false things about you, all because of me. Let us pray together. We welcome your spirit that is already present in our midst. Whether we are in this sanctuary or whether we are online, God, we gather together as your people in this moment so that we might know what it is to be recipients of your peacemaking love. Send us from this place as we reflect on Scripture together, as we pray, as we receive communion, that we might leave this place peacemakers more and more each day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. It's good to see all of you today. Welcome to all of you who've gathered with us online as well. And it is good to be with all of you today. I was reflecting this week as I was preparing the message uh, on one of the jobs I had while I was going to college and seminary. So I worked half time in a local church all the time I was in college and in seminary. And I had another part time job I kept as well. And I had a few of them. My very first job when I started out working when I was 16 was I was the stock boy in House of Fabrics. Yes, I worked in a fabric store. And so I know my fabric well. I went from there, worked in a machine shop, I worked for a bank, I worked for a lot of different places. But then one day I was at school at Biola and I saw a posting for a job that was open at the Evangelical Christian Credit Union. First of all, I didn't know there was such a thing as an evangelical Christian credit union, number one. And number two, I wasn't so sure about the job. It was being a collector. Who would think that the evangelical Christian credit union would need a collector? Not only did they need one of them, they needed two of them. And so I went ahead and I applied for the job and I was interviewed by a person who became a great mentor to me in that season of my life. At that point, he was the dean of the School of Business at Biola, Larry Strand. Larry was a marvelous, marvelous man. He interviewed me, he hired me, I started working, and I had the auspicious duty of collecting on unsecured debt. We call that a credit card. So if you don't pay your credit card on time, I'm the guy that calls you. And it was a remarkable job. I had it longer than I had any of my other part-time jobs. I had it for almost three years. And the reason I kept that job 
is because it taught me some wonderful skills that I use each and every day. Calling someone on the phone and talking to them about their finances when I don't even know them. Can you imagine what that's like when you're about 24 years old? It was a great experience. I learned a lot about peacemaking. I learned a lot about listening. I learned a lot about how to be with people in difficult moments and situations. I learned a lot about, are people telling me the truth? Are people lying? We're going to talk about some of that today as a part of the message. But I learned mostly peacemaking skills. Because oftentimes I would call and people would be upset. They'd be angry. They'd be frustrated that I was calling. They would be tired. They'd be fatigued. I was just one more drop in an endless line of drops in a person's life. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. This word for peacemaking Jesus uses in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 is an unusual word. It's only used two times in the New Testament. This is one of them. Blessed are the peacemakers in Matthew chapter 5 verse 9. And the only other time is in Colossians chapter 1 when the Apostle Paul talks about the peacemaking of Jesus Christ. Let me read that text from Colossians to you just for a moment. It's Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20. And I'll, I'll highlight when we get to the moment where the word happens. Paul writes, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, that is Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Here it is. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. You see how the way Paul uses that term is that Jesus is, is in the peacemaking work. He's not outside of the peacemaking work. So he's not some uh, negotiator or arbiter that goes home and just has a leisurely dinner after a hard, day, hard day's work of arbitrating over conflict. He's in the conflict and in the reconciliation. It's through his own death that peacemaking occurs. Jesus is in it, not outside of it. And that's what that word peacemaker means in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 that we're in the peacemaking. We're not just outside of it. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of the fabric of our being. And then there's this promise that if you're a peacemaker, you'd be called uh, what is in uh, some of, of the other translations, the a son of God. Our translation in the CEB, the Common English Bible, renders it children of God or God's children. In the first century in Jesus' day, when you heard Son of God in the first century, it meant different things to different people. But in that moment in Jewish history, it meant something very particular. There were those who believed that the Roman Empire needed to be overthrown by violence. And there were those in the Jewish context in Jesus' day that believed that the only way they could be free of Roman rule would be to arm themselves in a violent revolution. They saw themselves as revolutionaries. The Romans saw them as terrorists. And in this space, these individuals who were called zealots had a title for themselves. You'll never guess what it was. Sons of God. It was common in the first century to refer to the sons of God in the vernacular of the day as being the zealots, those who would seek liberation by violence. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, 
is kind of poking a little bit at the zealots, one of whom is one of his disciples. So let's read for a moment about how this peacemaking truth comes to life. Adrienne, come on up. We're glad to have you with us today. She's going to read you a text from Genesis chapter 33 about two brothers who are at odds with each other. One is named Esau. The other one is named Jacob. I will be reading this morning from the Common English Bible from the Pew Bible. You can follow along on page 40 if you wish. This is Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jacob looked up and saw Esau approaching with 400 men. Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two women servants. He put the servants and their children first, Leah and her children after them, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went in front of them and bowed to the ground seven times as he was approaching his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and they wept. Esau looked up and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children that God generously gave your servant. The women's servants and their children came forward and bowed down. Then Leah and her servants also came forward and bowed, and afterward Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed. Esau said, What's the meaning of this entire group of animals that I met? Jacob said, To ask for my master's kindness. Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what's yours. Jacob said, No, please do me the kindness of accepting my gift. Seeing your face is like seeing God's face, since you've accepted me so warmly. Take this present that I brought, because God has been generous to me, and I have everything I need. So Jacob persuaded him, and he took it. This is the word of the Lord. This is a rich and long story in the patriarchal history in the book of Genesis. And the best way to get up to speed on it is for us to take about an hour and a half and sit down together and read it. We don't have that much time. Jacob and Esau are twins, and they were born to parents Isaac and Rebekah. When they were born, Esau emerged from the womb first. And according to the story, Jacob's hand was grabbing his heel as they were born. From the moment they came into this world, Jacob was always trying to compete with his older brother. His older brother would be the recipient of the birthright, the blessing from the family. He would receive a larger portion of the inheritance because he was the eldest son. Jacob always thought throughout his life that that right should have been his, not his brother's. And to be honest, Esau didn't hold that birthright in very high regard. As a matter of fact, you, we can read the story in Genesis where he, he sells that birthright for a bowl of food, some Cheerios. So there's one sense in which Esau doesn't hold that birthright in very high regard. But Jacob does. Jacob is after that birthright, and he wants it at all costs. And so Esau and Jacob live this combative life for the most part until they approach the moment of their father's death. Isaac is dying. He's in his tent. He can barely see. And it was a custom in the Semitic world for the dying patriarch of the family to give a blessing 
to the eldest son, so that son would then receive the, the blessing and then carry on with the family's name. And so in conspiracy with Rebekah, his mother, Jacob dresses up like Esau, comes into the tent, tricks his nearly blind father into giving him the birthright blessing instead of his brother Esau. And then he comes out of the tent and his mother tells him, you better run for the hills because when Esau gets word of this, he is going to have your hide. Well, Esau does get word of it and the animosity between these two brothers is ignited. Esau, having something stolen from him that belonged to him, Jacob taking it from him, believing it was his right to take it. You know what the word Jacob means in Hebrew? Schemer. This is exactly what Jacob has spent most of his life doing. Scheming and conniving and trying to find a way to get the blessing. So you can only imagine how much Esau simply can't stand his own brother. They go their separate ways. They develop their households, their families, their lives. And years and years later, there comes a moment where Jacob decides he needs to have a reconciliation with his brother. And so he sends messengers ahead to tell his brother that he's coming and that he wants to reconcile. And so Jacob organizes his household in hierarchical order, from lowest to highest. He lines everybody up, and in front he puts an offering of animals, a bunch of sheep and, and donkeys and a bunch of stuff, that he's going to give his brother as a gift to so-called so repent for what he's done. And then he lines up the rest of his household, slaves, servants, everything else, and he eventually lines up uh, the two servant women who bore some of his children, and then eventually he brings Leah, his first wife, and her children, and then finally Rachel, the one Jacob had been waiting to marry for years and years and years, and her son, only son at that point, Joseph, lines them all up and sends them across the river so they're ready to go meet Esau. Jacob spends the night alone by himself. You can read this story in Genesis chapter 32. And while he's alone that night, an angel comes or an appearance of God comes to him and wrestles with him all night. And as morning comes and the very day when Jacob is going to have to go face Esau, the angel is prevailing against Jacob. And Jacob finally says, give me a blessing. And so the angel gives him a blessing knocks his hip joint out of socket so he will limp around the rest of his life. You see, the wrestling with the angel has many different meanings, and we could do about 20 different sermons on that. Just the one I want you to get for today is this, is that all of the conniving and striving that Jacob tried in order to secure his brother's place was never his to connive and strive for. And that what Jacob had been wrestling against his whole life was futility. And so in that very moment, the angel gives him a new name, changes his name from Jacob to Israel, for which we now name the nation Israel. And Jacob's life was set on a new trajectory. He was now ready, for the first time in his life, to meet his brother. And so the next day comes, Jacob goes off hobbling along 
after his experience of wrestling with the angel all night, with his new identity in hand, knowing that he needs to take nothing else from his brother, and in some sense knowing he needs to take nothing else for himself. Now he's prepared for the peacemaking work. So he goes and he meets his brother. His brother sees this big parade of animals and all these people coming. Esau sees all of it arriving. And then finally, everyone parts out of the way. Jacob walks right up the middle. He bows down on the ground before his brother seven times, it says. And he basically begs for his brother's forgiveness. It's a good story, isn't it? So there's some questions I have for you. And Nancy, I want you to go backwards because I want to go back to the first questions because I wanted to put them together real quick. Here's the question. Why is conflict or crisis often more attractive than peace? And how do we value those who are peacemakers? How do we value those people? Now, let's go ahead, Nancy, flip over to the next set of questions. How does blame interfere with peacemaking? And how might this affect our so-called cancel culture or other forms of public shaming we practice today? I wanted you to hear those wonderings together, and they're printed for you in the outline in the sermon, either online or in your bulletin, for you to think about this week. It's a rich story of conflict. So what are some lessons we can draw out of this story for ourselves? What can we possibly learn about peacemaking? Well, I would tell you, again, that just like this story about Jacob and Esau, we would need hours to talk about that. But let's just focus on four simple things we can learn from this story about peacemaking. The first is this, is that peacemaking happens in different ways. It happens in different ways. As you heard the story, how did Esau meet Jacob? Remember, he sees Jacob, he's bowing down on the ground, and Esau runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him when he meets him. It, it has these faint remembrances of the story Jesus told about the prodigal son, doesn't it? It kind of smacks of that, this, this sense of being warmly embraced when you didn't deserve it at all. When after what you've done, you deserve to be an outcast. But nonetheless, Esau embraces him. And then as they have this conversation, Jacob says, look, I brought all these donkeys and sheep and all this stuff for you. A new car. And Esau refuses all of it at first. But then eventually Jacob insists and he prevails on him. Peacemaking happens in different sorts of ways. A couple of years ago, I had a chance to go through a certification process for the intercultural conflict styles, the ICS. And what I learned in that certification process really was eye-opening to me. That, first of all, when we talk about the ways people make peace differently, there are some people who approach conflict or peacemaking indirectly. And there are some people who approach it directly. You know, directly is like if I've got a problem with someone, I go right to you and I talk to you about it. Indirectly is like I might send a messenger first. Or I might have another person talk to you first. Or maybe we have the community gather around to talk about it together before I approach you as an individual. I always thought that the direct way was the right way. No, that is not the case. The direct way is one way. Indirect is another way. I also learned in the intercultural conflict styles that some people approach conflict and reconciliation 
from a point of expressiveness. They're very out with their emotions. They're very loud. Am I being loud right now? Is it slightly disturbing to you with my big gesticulations and my loud voice? We've all met someone like that in conflict, haven't we? Someone who's really angry, really hurt. They're very expressive with their emotional energy. And on the other hand, we have people who are more restrained with their emotional energy. And within dominant American culture, we practice restraint. And sometimes restraint becomes repression in that we don't actually deal with the emotions we're feeling about conflict we may be in or the peacemaking that needs to happen. We, have, we handle peacemaking in different sorts of ways. So whenever we're in that peacemaking moment with another individual or with a group of people, remember first, just like Jacob and Esau, they both come at this differently. They approach it differently. So we have to be careful to listen, to pay attention, to watch how the other parties are engaging together with us when we come to that moment of peacemaking. Another lesson we might learn from the story is that the goal is reconciliation, not arbitrary justice. One of my favorite thinkers on justice is Martin Bieber, and he talks about this notion that how every form of human justice is imperfect. And I learned this when I was a collector. Every form of human justice is imperfect because when I was a collector, I approached it from the standpoint of you got a credit card, you went out and bought stuff, and you didn't pay for it. And I'm here to collect. And so when I started that job, I started it from the standpoint that these people must be nefarious. What have they done wrong? I sounded exactly like one of those Pharisees. Who sinned? Whose fault is this? And what I learned in that job is that I have no way of knowing the intent of people's hearts. I don't know their situation. I don't know their circumstance. I don't know what happened. And it's not my job to dispense justice. It's my job to be in a conversation about how, for most people, they want to repay what they owe. They just don't know how to do it. Very, very few people were, well, how shall we say, hostile at the evangelical Christian credit union. But there were some. There's no way, like Bieber suggests, that I could know the intent of a person's heart. It's the same way today. Look at the person next to you just for a minute. They could be your spouse. They could be your child. They could be someone you don't even know. Look at them. Just don't really turn your heads and look. As well as you may know that person, and as well as you may not know that person, you do not know the depths of their heart. Only God knows that. And so part of our entrance into peacemaking work is to recognize that the goal is reconciliation. It's not to decide what's just. It's not to decide what's fair. It's to understand that the goal is to bridge gaps between people, between organizations, between communities, so that they can find a new way together. The third key I think we can pull from the story is that Christians are supposed to lead in this work of peacemaking, not follow. Lead in this work. Remember, there would have been no peacemaking between Jacob and Esau if Esau hadn't been willing to receive Jacob and Jacob had not have gone. If Jacob had not even started the overture to peacemaking, what would have happened? Nothing. 
Esau would have lived out the rest of his days in Edom, wondering what happened to his brother. And Jacob would live out his days near Hebron, wondering what could have happened had he reconciled with his brother. They would have both lived lives of what if, what might of, what could have, instead of what did happen. The followers of Jesus lead in peacemaking. So I want to show you a picture. Here it is. This is a picture I took in the Holy Land a few years ago, and this was taken in the old city of Hebron. Now, Hebron is in the Palestinian territory, and you probably wonder what in the world this woman is doing like this. Well, the reason she's doing that is because we're standing in the old city of Hebron, which is the ancient city, and it's a very famous location in Hebron. It's where the tomb of the patriarchs are. Abraham's tomb is in Hebron. So it's a pilgrimage location for Jews, pilgrims, and Muslims. They all show up in Hebron. So you can imagine the kind of conflict that takes place there in the West Bank. The old city of Hebron is built at the bottom of a, a, a hillside. And up above it, on the top of the hillside, the Israelis have built new Jewish settlements right above them. And the way the Jewish community shows its disdain for the Palestinians living in the old city of Hebron is by dumping all of their trash out of their settlement down the hillside. And it goes down the hillside and it falls into the old city. And so in the old city, they put nets over all the streets so that trash and debris doesn't fall on people while they're walking down the street. Hence, the gesture. She's explaining to us the nets. Now, why is this woman important? Well, she's important for a lot of reasons. Because you can imagine the tensions in Hebron between the Palestinians who are dominantly Muslim, but many of them are Christian brothers and sisters. And the, the Jewish community that's settled up in the Israeli settlements on the hill. You can imagine how combative this context is. You'll notice she's wearing a little red hat, if you can see it clear enough. Can, I, can you see the, the brim of her red hat? On her hat, there are three letters written on it. CPT. By the way, the woman's Quaker. And the letters on her hat stand for Christian Peacemaking Team. And what this wonderful woman does is every time in the city of Hebron, there's a conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis or between one community and another. Guess who's the first person to show up? She is. Diminutive. She can't be taller than this. And she shows up and she tries to calm everyone down, see what kind of solutions can be reached. She brokers listening opportunities and groups to meet together, to talk and exchange ideas. She is known in the city of Hebron for peacemaking. Brothers and sisters, this, this is what Christians do. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons, and in this case, daughters of God. Now, there's the fourth thing I think we can learn from the story that's important, that we need to embrace unconventional loss and gain. This story's, <clears throat> excuse me, pretty awesome because Jacob brings to Esau a whole bunch of stuff. Remember the offering he's going to give his brother, the peace offering he's bringing? He didn't bring a little bit. He, bought, he gave away over half of his possessions. 
in that offering to Esau. So embracing unconventional loss and gain is important. Jacob's gift was ultimately received by Esau, but I want you to understand that from Jacob's standpoint, that gift he brought cost a lot, didn't it? Over half of his assets, he gave away practically. But do you see the math that Jacob is using? The math he's using is that the reconciliation with his brother is more valuable than all of those things. That's why it's unconventional loss and gain. So friends, when we go into the work of peacemaking, if we think the work of peacemaking is to come to a fair solution, we've already lost. We've already lost. The solution is inequitable in every way. As much as Jacob brought, he could never bring what he's stolen from his brother. Because once taken, it can never be given back. The birthright. So today we're going to gather around the communion table. And what did Paul tell us in Colossians chapter 1? He told us that Jesus made peace through his cross, correct? So in the cross of Jesus Christ, in the death of Jesus, did we get what we deserved? No. The cross is a profound pronouncement around the world of unfairness, of inequity. The cross and this table stand for us as a magnanimous expression of God's grace that we could never, ever pay back. That God has done something for us that we could never give enough thanks for. And what Jesus invites us to do is to come and receive this bread and cup, to receive the, the very substance of reconciliation and peacemaking so that literally and figuratively we walk out of this place carrying the peacemaker with us. It's hard work to do. I remember how nervous I was, 23 years old, when I had to pick up a phone for the first time and call someone to ask them why they hadn't paid their credit card. Racked with nerves. It's kind of like that. So I say, at least for me, I need this meal. I need this meal now more than ever. Because the age in which we live is filled with so much hate and anger, vitriol and polarization. Don't you think the world's ready, more than ready, for a bunch of peacemakers? Let's pray. God, we pray that you would feed us at this, your table, and help us to become vessels of peacemaking. And that peacemaking may look like for us a, a broken relationship with a family member. It may look like a, an awkward situation at work. It might look like two groups we know that are just embattled. It might even be politics. Who knows? But God, your promise is to feed us peacemaking food at this table so that we might go forth as peacemakers. In the name of Jesus, amen. Mm -hmm.